Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra, and this is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is 10 August 2022, and we've been discussing the membrane biochemistry association with certain circuits in the central nervous system. And in particular, I've been trying to discuss fear and fear conditioning. And I really want to move away from the animal models, although that's where most of the basic research is, even to uh, up to and including um, the literature you're going to find being published uh, recently. It's because it's very difficult to do deep investigations into the human central nervous system that involves biochemistry. You can do a lot of scanning and there is some associated oh, oxygen uptake and metabolic pathways you can study via scanning. Um, but you cannot really look at the biochemical circuitry and the network of all the processes in the human brain uh, in any kind of uh, emotional or healthy state. Um, and so even trying to key out what occurs in a fear response versus an anxiety-associated um, neuropsychiatric condition is really beyond the scope of what can be done in the laboratory uh, setting or in the clinical setting with humans. But we know a lot about the neurohormones that are involved. We know a fair amount about the circuitry because of the animal models. So I'm going to do right now is get into really intense detail about that. Um, I'm going to give you this as a warning that most of this work was done in rodent models. And that means the extrapolation, as you know, I'm very much against extrapolating what we find in the animal models to human metabolism. And that's because of the complexity of the human system as compared to all other animal systems. In particular, when we're talking about anything associated with the central nervous system. So with that huge caveat, let's go ahead and discuss some details that I've been able to um, ascertain for our examinations. Now, first of all, I want to tell you some just basic, straightforward definitions, because you're going to need to have this as an understanding while we get into the pertinent um, research literature. So there is a lot of anatomical nuclei in the central nervous system we have to discuss. One of them is the CEA. Now that's known as the central nucleus of the amygdala. Now that's composed primarily of GABAergic interneurons, and they're controlled through glutamatergic neurotransmission. So the CEA is basically subdivided into the medial and lateral. So you have CEM and C small EL divisions. The CEA receives these glutamatergic inputs, inputs from other amygdala nuclei. For example, the BLA and the lateral amygdala, basal lateral amygdala and the lateral amygdala. But also from the PFC, that's the prefrontal cortex, the hippocampus, and indeed the parabrachial nucleus, along with certain GABAergic inputs from the BNST, which I'm going to explain next. 
Now you have intercalated cells that are along this common network. The inputs converge primarily onto the CEL. And again, this is going to be associated with the central nucleus of the amygdala. The gabinergic neurons are going to synapse onto that portion of the amygdala directly to the gabinergic neurons. The gabinergic neurons send inhibitory projections throughout the brain. And that includes associated hypothalamus, paraequiductal gray, the ventral tegmental area, the locus coriolis, and the nucleus of the solitary tract. And you've heard me talk about these before. I know it would be helpful if I had, was showing you up on the screen uh, anatomical detail of all these nuclei. But understand these are all basically subcortical limbic regions. And that's all you really need to know at this point. The real detail about how they are connected is really not well known. We only know that these tracks are associated because we're able to, we're able to follow certain neuropeptides and catecholamines and other neurobiochemicals through those tracks because of tracing studies, all done in animal models, okay? But you still need to understand this uh, association before we get into the basic research. So all of that I just told you, the central nucleus of the amygdala, coordinates behavioral and physiological responses, including what is known as negative affect. Now, negative affect, of course, is depression, anxiety, and another um, psychiatric parameter that is known as hypervigilance. These are all stress responses, <laughs> and they've been studied in the murine model. And in, that means in mouse, but also in the rat model. Now, that's a neurocircuitry. You have to understand that there's modulation of a glutamatergic signaling, and that's via neuronal and non-neuronal inputs. Now, those non-neuronal inputs are going to be the glial component. All of that's going to be occurring in this central nucleus of the amygdala. Okay. Now, there are also some glutamatergic inputs that we've just mentioned to you, and those are believed to modulate what are known as feed-forward inhibition to the uh, central nucleus of the amygdala, okay? So there are a lot of neuropeptides involved here. We're going to talk about them. We've already brought some up. Oxytocin and corticotropin releasing factor. Those are two that we've been mentioning, and we're going to spend a lot of time this afternoon on those two. Now, the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampal inputs into the central nucleus of the amygdala will develop according to neuronal tract, neuronal tract pruning all the way through adolescence. And in fact, we know something about this in humans because during that process, the association of alcohol exposure to the corruption of that circuitry has been most described. Now, 
Let's move on to a little bit more. This comes from a paper published in Current Neuropharmacology back in 2013. It told me that the bed nucleus of Estria terminalis, now that's the BNST, the last bit, the last thing I talked to you about, the central nucleus of the amygdala being associated with that BNST, remember? So this is another component of the limbic system, the bed nucleus of Estria terminalis. And what it is, is a complex limbic forebrain structure. And it appears to be significant in controlling the autonomic neuroendocrine and behavioral responses in general. So obviously that covers a lot of ground. So this BNST connects the limbic forebrain structures to the hypothalamic and brainstem regions. And obviously that's going to link up to autonomic and, and basic neuroendocrine functions. So the control of all of that physiological and in the animal model behavioral activity seems to be mediated by the local action of a whole host of neurotransmitters, some of which we've already discussed. And so the BNST is involved then in the control of autonomic and neuroendocrine function. And in particular, the BNST seems to be associated with the cardiovascular system. Okay. And this means you're going to get an involvement of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Okay. So let's move on. In the neurocircuitry of what is known as the Pavlovian response, the Pavlovian fear response is known as PF conditioning or Pavlovian fear conditioning. You're going to have lateral amygdala involvement. And it's going to be where sensory inputs from the thalamus are entering the limbic system. So... The lateral amygdala is associated with the thalamus by sensory input, and that will convey all of this important sensory information to that central amygdala uh, sub subnuclear fraction we just talked about. Now, when you have fear conditioning, auditory or even visual cues, which are considered conditional stimuli, or CS, will terminate with a somatosensory input, which is delivered from certain unconditioned stimulus. Now, this is in the animal model. So you have a conditioned stimulus, which is the actual auditory and visual cue. Now, that's going to be linked to an unconditioned stimulus, which is normally in the animal model, model a foot shock okay so this is the way it's done in animals so the central amygdala projection to the medial central amygdala that's the cem i mentioned to you five minutes ago is going to be the main structure where you're going to get projections to the brain stem involvement of fear affection now, that's going to include a couple of other um, limbic nuclei, including the paraequiductal gray, 
And that mediates another response in the, in the rodent model called freezing behavior. Freezing behavior is just like it sounds. The animal stops moving and acts like it's frozen. And that is a part of its fear conditioning, right? And you also get a startle response. And that's con considered coming from what's known as the reticular formation or the RF. So this, of course, is going to include the lateral hypothalamus because that's where you get autonomic, cardiovascular, and respiratory tone, right? So you, get, you have to have that associated with this response. You also have the PVN, that's that paraventricular nucleus, because that's where hormone secretion plays a role. Now, all of that circuitry I just described, remember this, if you remember nothing else, the central amygdala comes out to play the critical component for the acquisition and the consolidation for a memory of a fear placement. Now, this is important because remember that we talked about last time how in humans you have faculties of understanding and imagination and contemplation. You don't have any of this in the animal model. The animal model is all behavioral. But still, because we know about the circuitry in the animal, we can start to piece together at least where the neuronal tracks lie in the limbic system for where memories track to. Because having a memory of a fear is a component of conceptualization in the faculty of understanding in the human central nervous system. And so we have to include an understanding of the basolateral nucleus of the amygdala because that is in the, in the rodent model. That's where it appears that the memory of fear is associated. Now, it can't be called storage there because you don't have a compartment, a sub-limbic a sub, uh, or sub-nuclear portion of the central nervous system within the limbic system that is um, a repository, like a library of information. No, it means that the circuitry is associated with the transport of signaling through all of those nuclei. And every time that same stimulation occurs, the same set of neurons and then associated glia particularly astrocytes and microglia association, which is going to involve the immune response and epigenetic tailoring. That kind of fear conditioning and fear memory will be linked to these tracks that I just described to you. But it's not like you're storing it like a library. It's not like you can find a, a nuclei or individual neurons, and those neurons are going to have encoded in them a fear response from the sound of, say, a cougar uh, at midnight up in the mountains. No, it's not like that at all. It's the fact that you have an event ontology. You have a networking of intense electrochemical, electro-neurobiochemical linkages that are either tuned up or attenuated in a specific temporal fractionation through several subcortical nuclei 
that when that is induced because of some response, like the sound of a cougar, that is the kind of memory that will reassociate if a person indeed has a memory of that specific event, occurrence of fear. See? So it is, it is a means by which you develop a response to fear. It's not a library of fear. That's why I keep on emphasizing in the human, we move away from behavioral, like this response occurs and the animal, the mouse responds to it. The mouse isn't thinking cougar. The mouse isn't thinking, right? The mouse's entire apparatus is to change behavior because of a fear response for survival. In the human, it's beyond a behavioral response to survival. It's a cognition of a specific fear of an animal that could be a predator. All of this occurring in moving from the immediate to the mediation, which we talked about last time, all within the level of microseconds. And then the agent human responds. Okay. And the same kind of fear condition can occur with human human interaction, as you might understand. So it's not like you have to have already been afraid of getting attacked at night in a city, say getting stabbed or getting mugged. And that is a fear conditioning that you're going to respond the same way to every time. No, it's not like that. It's much more sophisticated than that. But there is a correlation of neural circuitry. And that's what I'm trying to give you a, a real healthy understanding of. Because this is what we do, or this is what is done in neuroscience. Um, I did very little work in my overall career doing neuroscience, a few years. People have devoted their entire career. And of course, there are generations of fantastically good neuroscience, most of which this kind of really deep understanding of tracking the circuitry is being done in animal models for the obvious reasons I just mentioned to you. But even in the animal models, you're not measuring all of the biochemical inputs. No, you're measuring major players that will instantiate and then induce a response, then you'll get some kind of potentiation via reception, via the receptor of, say, a ligand, like the CRF to the CRF receptors, one or two, right? And then all the downstream mediation. And that's fine. You can describe that. But remember, each time you have a ligand binding to a receptor, you have multiple component associated polypeptides in the membrane that are also either enhancing or perhaps attenuating that response, thus fine tuning the response within the membrane. Remember the membrane isn't composed of the neurohormones or the neuropeptides. No, it's composed of sphingolipids and glycerolipids and cholesterol in various concentrations in various molecular species. But as I've been telling you for the last 31 or so lectures, the membrane isn't just a warehouse where all this occurs. The membrane is the dynamic active component because it provides all of the necessary 
plasticity and elasticity to form a platform where all of this activity can occur in real time. Why is it so important to talk about the lipids and the membrane and not just the polypeptides? Because the lipids can turn over very rapidly and do not require gene expression. Sure, in the basal understanding of the synthesis of, say, ceramide phosphate or phosphatidylglycerol, you need the expression of genes at the level of transcription, translation, post-translational modification, and then the then the reactions from those enzymes leading to the production of something like PG or PI or PC or PE or schwingomyelin, right? But remember that that's a slow process, the expression of all those genes. What we have in the membrane are all of the products of the reactions, all in a specific first blush compositional network but we know in a sequence network because we know that pattern recognition works on sequence ontologies, not compositional ontologies, because that's how we figured out how nucleic acids and polypeptides function. And in fact, even the associated bonding in uh, the glycocalyx of, say, simple organisms like bacteria. Okay? And we don't have a composite understanding of membrane primary structure. So all we can really describe is composition, but we know that the primary structure of the membrane, meaning the association of specific lipids and molecular species of different classes of lipids are absolutely essential for all of what I just described to you to occur. Okay. So that's, that's the key feature that I want you to take home. So let me remind you of what I see as, you know, the, the overall, if you're standing on top of, atop of Pikes Peak and you're looking down at Colorado Springs, right? From that higher elevation, from 14,000 feet, looking at 7,700 feet, which I've done uh, on multiple occasions or when I used to live in Colorado Springs, near there. That overview of Colorado Springs that gives you everything that's happening, you can get a wide, sublime understanding of hundreds and hundreds of miles, square miles. But you don't see the detail, but you know the details there, right? So let me give you again what I call the dialectical events surrounding, and I'm going to be very specific here, but you know I broaden this out to all biological systems, but surrounding fear and fear conditioning. What are the dialectical events and what is the ontology? Okay. First of all, this is going way to the source. There have to be electromagnetic waveform and particle radiation sources that has to be received as a series of patterns by the combined sensoria. Just think about the five senses. Secondarily then, the sensorial work a priori. So you get an a priori synthesis of that waveform radiation. And that we know this because the sensorial work a priori through pattern recognition receptors and signal transduction cascades 
to generate a form of the stimulus. Now, the imagination instantiates the dialectical a priori operation by using the empirical evidence, whatever that happens to be, like the roar of a tiger, in real time to represent that event, sense data, sometimes called intuition. Different use of the term intuition that's used in uh, modern day common language. But that's what it is. It's sense data, but it's event sense data. And that's exactly what neurotransmission is. And that event sense data gets schematized into ideas that are then sent to the understanding. So now you have a stimulus, which is processed through the agency of recognition and ideation, which involves the faculty of the understanding because that is where we are able to form abstracted concepts, such as that sound is associated with a bear, right? You see? And that's a concept, it's an abstraction of an individual occurrence. And the individual occurrence are ideas. And the reason we say that imagination is involved is because you have, your, your mind imagines what may not actually be there, but it imagines it sufficiently to generate the idea that then fuses with the concept that moves into the third movement, which of course is going to be contemplation. So the third movement of a priori responsivity of this fear response involves the faculty of contemplation. And that's going to work in what I call a super immediate. So it's an immediate response, but it's above all of the instantaneous processing I just mentioned to you. So it's super immediate and it's a mechanism. It's a mechanism that identifies the stimulus as danger. So let me sum that up. From my realization of understanding the published research, the fear response circuitry recombines or adds back together the peripheral sensorial reception, which is sent, and I will throw in now a specific players, is sent via cholinergic, icosanoid, membrane potentiations to aggregate the neuroelectrobiochemical action potential, afferents to the subcortical regions of the arcuate nucleus of the hippocampus, which is innervated with axons, to the subcortical limbic system that represents affect or emotion via the dopaminergic and adrenergic pathways 
to the prefrontal cortex that finally carries out the processes of understanding and imagination and contemplation via strengthening and immediate in-situ epigenetic modifying of an a priori expression pattern, thus facilitating the response. So that's a mouthful, but that's also a mindful. And I told you all of that now, because I want you to understand that the mechanisms we deal with in neurocircuitry are correlated to real life events. But to argue that they cause real life events, like the circuitry causes fear, is trying to extrapolate behavioral, crude behavioral responses of rodent animals to the far more sophisticated rational mind that is able to interpret that all of that sense data with this super immediacy and be able to figure out what those sounds or sense or or smell or all those other components of the sensoria are able to put together to generate the fear response. So that requires the faculties of understanding, imagination, and contemplation when you talk about humans. Okay. So let me see how much time I've got. I don't want to be cut off like I seem to be able to. Okay, <laughs> I'm finished. That's good. So again, this is this is my um overarching um, architectonic 